Thanks again, you guys, for tremendous worship this week. It's such a gift to gather with people from different locations and different denominations and different backgrounds, different stories. But indeed, the one thing that binds us together is Christ. And that is the unity that we enjoy and that we will experience for all of eternity. So what a gift that is. I'm going to read just a couple of scriptures and then uh, pray and then we'll begin. I'm, I'm reading to begin with from Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And then First uh, Corinthians chapter 10, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all baptized into Moses, all uh, drank the sp same spiritual drink, all ate the same spiritual food. They were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them. The rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased for they were laid low in the wilderness. Let's pray together. Father, our desire is having begun this journey with you that we continue. It always feels to me uh, like our camp experience is, is in a sense a starting gun for a new lap for many of us. Uh, and yet we know it's easy to go out too quickly on adrenaline and then to try and sustain ourselves on adrenaline until the next lap, next July or August, is ridiculous. So our prayer, Father, is that we wouldn't live on adrenaline, but on the power of your Holy Spirit. And I pray that you teach us that in this last session we have together. Thanks again, Father, for the incredible privilege of gathering to receive revelation from you. May your spirit be our teacher today. Give us ears to hear, ability to respond. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Of course, the goal of this race is transformation. Uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 to 18, that we all with unveiled face are beholding, like in an ongoing way, we're beholding the glory of the Lord, the very glory that Eric has been speaking about so richly and poignantly and powerfully in the sessions subsequent to my own, uh, have been this invitation for us to live our lives with a fixation on the glory of God. And then the promise in 2 Corinthians 3, 16 to 18, is that if we, in an active fashion, that's the active verb, if we're gazing on God's glory, then in a passive way, we are being, we're told, being transformed from glory to glory so that we are looking more and more and more like nothing less than God incarnate, the person of Jesus. Each of us uniquely expressing our gifts and our personality, but nevertheless, displaying to a world filled with despair and darkness and lust and greed and fear and shame, nothing less than the transforming power of Jesus himself. God's desire is that you would display more and more of Christ when you leave here. And if we are uh, together leaving here as vessels wholly given over to God's purpose, intent on running God's race, I tell you what, Northern California changes. Because you, what, to the extent that you reflect Christ, good things happen. Yet the testimony of 1 Corinthians 10 is that when we go back and we look at those under the leadership of Moses, it says, 
lots of people started the race. They passed through the Red Sea. They put the blood on the door. They drank from the rock that was Christ. And yet, they didn't finish the race. They were laid low in the wilderness. And so, God's desire is that you and I would live in such a way that we not only start the race, but finish the race. And I just want to tell you, as a pastor, I'm living through a season of seeing many people drop out of the race. And many people who are dropping out of the race are doing so for, you know, any number of reasons. But one of the predominant reasons that I hear is that they're looking around at others that are ostensibly in the race and seeing an appalling lack of the character of Jesus displayed among those claiming to follow Christ. In other words, I was just listening to a podcast on the way to the airport to come here, and one of the first sentences in the the podcast was this. It's important that we as Christians begin to reframe the criteria for leadership away from one's capacity to build a crowd and instead begin to ask this question. Is this person displaying the fruit of the Spirit? In other words, lots of people can build crowds, but when the day is done, the most important thing is this. Do you look like Jesus? And that means are you kind and gentle and patient? I say to people when I teach preaching, I say, look, you can exegete the text and know all the Greek and all the Hebrew, but make eye contact. Like, in other words, be kind. Listen to people. Be gentle. But that is the byproduct, actually, of an ongoing journey of transformation. Mount Hermon's mission statement, you know, transformed lives. So this is what we're about. We want to be on this race for the long haul. And the question is, you know, how do we do that? Well, uh, we're going to look this morning at, at, at the why of running this race, what motivates us, the how of running this race, and the who of running this race. And so we're going to look at those things together. And we, we begin with the, with the how. How do we run the race? Well, excuse me, how, we begin with the why. The why is this. Again, in Hebrews chapter 12, it says, look, you have a great cloud of witnesses. So there's people who have gone before you. And, you know, when you think about that, the people that have gone before you are kind of, they kind of fall into two different categories. There's these kind of macro historical folks that carried the torch generations before us that laid the foundation, including Moses, who we look at uh, in in the other sessions this morning, and the Apostle Paul, and Augustine, and Martin Luther, and St. Patrick, and then in the most recent century, you know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer and one of my own personal heroes, uh, Sophie Scholl, who was executed at the age of 23 in Germany because she had the courage to stand up against the Reich in the name of Jesus, and Martin Luther King, and none of them are perfect, but all of them are used by God to bring us to this day, this moment, this place. People are pouring into us, right? So there's a foundation that's been laid at this kind of macro-cultural level, and that for each one of us as well, there are people who have invested in us in particular. And just as I'm, you know, chatting about my people, I hope that you're not listening too carefully, but rather thinking about your people, if that makes sense. Because I know in my own life, uh, I'm adopted, and uh, so I think all the time about the woman who had the courage to give me up for adoption, and about my adoptive parents who adopted me 
in Oakland, California in 1956. I still have a letter uh, from my dad to my grandmother here from uh, 1957, the first summer I came to Mount Hermon as an infant, when my dad said uh, to, my, to my grandma, you know, we're bringing little Richie to, to, to camp for the very first time. And he's a delightful, cute kid, and then, and here I am, right? Still delightful, still cute. That's my hope, anyway. But then I think about my band teacher as well, who affirmed my gifts in music, and, and said to me, man, you know, fan those gifts into flame, which eventually led me to becoming a music major. And then I, I think about significant friends at Cal Poly, who moved me out of a season of depression and anxiety after my dad had died and pointed me to Christ. And then I think about Earl Rodmacher, a particular pastor who was at the time president of uh, Western Seminary up in Portland. And I'd gone to a ski retreat just to chase a cute blonde, basically. And uh, Earl Rodmacher spoke exactly the topic that Eric's been speaking this week. Everything in the, in, the, in the weekend was based on Jeremiah 9.23. Hey, if you're going to boast in anything, boast in this one thing that you understand and know God. And then the speed, like at the time, I'm studying architecture and I'm getting good grades, but I'm super unhappy and depressed and have not a clue regarding my future and I'm lonely. And the speaker then literally points at me. He didn't know me from anybody. He points at me and says, study in the room are really successful outwardly, and you're killing it academically, but you're lonely, depressed, anxious, and you don't have a clue what to do with your life. And I was like, did he read my mind before he got up to speak? Like, how did that happen? And he said, what you need to do is get down on your knees and change your goal in life. Make knowing God the number one goal in your life. And I went down, this is Camp Sugar Pine, just outside of Fresno, I went down, I went out in the snow, and I got down on my knees, I prayed, I said, God, I don't know what this means, but I'm going to make knowing you the goal. It changed everything. Within six months, I'd changed majors, I'd changed states, I, I ended up in Seattle studying music, meeting who would then become my wife there, ultimately going to seminary, uh, ultimately getting tricked by God into becoming a pastor, <laughs> and here we are, right? But... I'll always remember Earl Rodmacher. And then I'll always remember my seminary professor who after I preached in class took me aside and just said to me, Richard, you have a gift. And just fan that gift into flame. I needed somebody to tell me that because I didn't think I had a gift. And Major Ian Thomas, the founder of Torchbearers, who invested in me. Everyone was in the room have a list. And the point is this. People have poured into us, and the people who have poured into us have birthed in us this propensity to love and seek and follow and serve Jesus. And the author of Hebrews is saying, if you're going to run the distance, there will be days when the only reason you put the mantle on is because people have gone before you. So be mindful of the witnesses. During COVID, I read a beautiful book entitled The Hidden Life of Trees. And I learned by reading The Hidden Life of Trees that uh, trees in the forest, and this is the perfect place to see it, 
Trees in the forest are not individual trees. Trees are connected to one another. The roots are intertwined. And in addition, there's both visible and invisible mushrooms called the mycelium network. And, and the mycelium network that connects the trees to one another is kind of this information superhighway. Author of Secret Life of Trees calls it the wood wide web, right? <laughs> because, because it's sending data throughout the network uh, off big trees, like the ones out here, offloading carbon and uh, sugar and sending carbon and sugar to the little trees that don't get the adequate sunlight. And then, get this, if a chainsaw starts cutting into a tree, immediately that tree, knowing it's, uh, it's the day of its execution, that tree off, begins offloading all of its carbon and nutrients through the, through the network to all the surrounding trees. And it shares with all the trees, even different species, but it shares more of its nutrients with its own family of trees. Is that amazing to me? Like I always thought, you know, I mean, we live in a culture where, to be blunt, individualism is an idol. And we, and we hear this, don't we? Accept Christ as your personal savior. I, listen, I get it. He is my personal savior. But the more accurate articulation of the faith is this. Look, when you came to Christ, you became part of a vast family of sons and daughters that are, in God's economy and God's perspective, all interconnected. So, you know, every morning, I, I have this little moment of meditation in my life where I go, uh, look, Christ is above me. I'm receiving gifts. Christ is beneath me. I'm rooted and grounded in love, Ephesians 3. Christ is around me, and whenever I say Christ is around me, God brings to my mind people. And, and because why? Because Christ is in Dave Burns, and I'm receiving the life of Christ through his life. And so when, when God brings Dave to mind, I pray for Dave. When God brings Mike to, to mind, I pray for Mike. When God brings Keith to mind, I pray for Keith now that I've met him <laughs> this week. But God will bring people to, into our mind, and it's a reminder, we don't do this alone. We're connected. And there are those who invested in us, and then the last thing that I pray in my meditation is Christ within me, I'm called, and that's my reminder. Look, because others were Christ to me, it now falls to me to be Christ to others. And it says in Colossians 3, put on the mantle, put on Christ every day, put, it on, put Christ on. And that doesn't mean that Christ is like a sweatshirt that you put on. It means remember that your calling is to be nothing less than the presence of the resurrected Jesus to anyone you meet on any given day because Christ lives in you and desires to serve the world through you. So that means that uh, ministry for you is not uh, a Sunday thing or, you know, or a board meeting thing. Ministry for you is this conscious awareness that you're the presence of Christ everywhere you go. Years ago, uh, I was snowshoeing with a friend up near where we live. My friend was from Austria. He didn't believe me when I told him we get 400 inches of snow. 
And so he was visiting, and, and I said, I'll show you. And so we're, you know, we're out snowshoeing, and it's, a, it's snowing, about an inch an hour, super high avalanche danger, but we're in the safe area, right? So we're down in the woods where avalanches don't happen. And then someone comes screaming out from above tree line, saying, there's just been an avalanche, somebody's buried. And so my friend and I have avalanche, you know, re rescue training. So, you know, we take off and, and we're going to go look for this young woman, 25, had just moved from West Virginia to Seattle because she, you know, loves hiking in the mountains and that kind of thing. First snowshoe trip. And so here's her boyfriend. Here, here she is. And she's gone. There's like five people in this little group. So, you know, we're probing, digging, nothing for an hour. Search and rescue shows up. And they're like this. Everybody has to leave. Well, the boyfriend, he got belligerent. He didn't want to leave. And then, um, and then they said, you have to leave. And he fell down and so threw up. Just started sobbing, you know. So I just go over to him. This doesn't always work out so well, but I said to him, I, I don't know if this is helpful or not, but I'm a pastor. Immediately, he hugs me and just won't let go. He's just sobbing. I said, you know, let me walk out with you. I'll meet you down in Seattle. I'll be with you when you call her family. We can plan the service. Whatever you need, whatever you need. Uh, let me, what's the point of the story? Like, when are you available to be the presence of Jesus? Oh, you know, that day, that particular day was my Sabbath. It's Friday. And it would be eminently easy to be like this. You know, it's risky to even go above tree line. Not our table. Thanks. Good luck. But, you know, here's the reality. Our calling is to, like, consciously put on Christ so that as we walk through life, it doesn't matter if you're on a train, a plane, in a restaurant, snowshoeing, skiing, hiking, at the movies. You're the presence of Christ, folks. And just knowing that enables you to stay in the race. So that's the first thing. We have this great cloud of witnesses who have invested in us, and that motivates us then because they were the presence of Christ to me, I want to then be the presence of Christ for others, so I consciously put on Christ. That's the first thing. Second thing, here's kind of the how. You gotta lighten the load. And what does that mean? Well, the text says this. Lay aside every encumbrance. In other words, I'm called to wholeness in spirit and soul and body so that I have the kind of the capacity in my life to use the gifts that God has given me in order to bless the world. And that calling requires shedding anything that's in the way. These are called encumbrances because they're not necessarily even bad things, though they can be, 
but they're things that prevent us from fulfilling our calling. Paul said it positively this way, right? He said uh, to Timothy, hey, fan into flame the gift that God has given you. So like once you know that you're called to, uh, you know, write symphonies, <laughs> then dude, do it. Like don't be dissuaded by a billion distractions. And they're always there, right? If you're called uh, to, to uh, be in the medical field, then, you know, go deep. If you're called like um, Sydney, the sprinter we saw yesterday that Eric posted up here, to do hurdles, then be the best hurdler you can be. But to be the best, like to use your gift means saying no to other stuff. And that sounds like a burden. It's really not. Because when you say no to distractions in order to focus on the, on, on, on the gifts that God has given you, then you're aligning yourself with God's story. You're becoming more of who God made you to be. It's so easy for me to allow other things to take me away from what is my primary calling that I have to remind myself I'm made, you know, to teach and write and lead and shepherd. And so, you know, I have those words kind of above my desk in my office because when I get in my office and I open my computer, there, you know, there's ESPN. And I want to know how the San Francisco Giants did. So there's 20 minutes. And then there's an ad over there on how to sleep better. And then, oh, that's meaningful at 65. So there's 10 more minutes. And then that ad leads me to the problem of, you know, men peeing in the middle of the night when they're over 55. You know, wow, okay. And then pretty soon it's like 11.30 and I haven't done anything because those are encumbrances. Are, are you with me? So like, hey, God's giving you a gift. Go deep. And then, and then uh, in, in addition to laying aside encumbrances, we're called to lay aside, this is such an interesting phrase, we're called to lay aside the besetting sin. Like, the besetting sin. What is that? Well, here's the thing. When we get tired in our journey, this story that God has called us to walk in, because it's not easy, and when, the, when we encounter suffering, many of us have means of kind of self-medicating as a form of escaping from fulfilling the calling God has for us. And this self-medication takes different forms for different people, but we, we default to, like in our self-medicating, we default to a different identity. You know, I am my boat, I am my travel, I am my family, I am my sport, I am my sexuality, or in some dramatic circumstances, I am my bitterness, I am my pain, I am my temper, I am my body image. No, you're not. Those are things you carry, but those don't define you. You are complete in Christ. You are fully loved. You're adopted. You're filled with the Holy Spirit. You're gifted. You're called. You have a, you have a reason to go out of the world and be a blessing. But we lose sight of that because when the suffering hits, we go, oh, yeah, yeah. This is too hard. I'm going to go sailing. This is too hard. You know, I'm going to go skiing. This is too hard. Whatever it is, all of us have these things that we, we default to. 
And then if we can't even get away and do the things we love to do, we, we create in our minds this kind of fantasy world. And we take comfort, not because it's so comfortable, but because we're simply escaping the pain of our calling. And it is painful at times. It says in Hebrews 12, Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured in this present moment the pain of going the extra mile, of turning the other cheek, of giving generously, of serving, of forgiving. It's not easy, but there's a joy in it. We believe that by faith. So we endure rather than, than escaping into this fantasy world where there is no pain. Some people have, you know, sexual pornography problems. And my wife says, or did, I'm freed from this porn now, but she said, Richard, you've got a porn problem. And I go, what do you mean? She goes, well, when, whenever you're discouraged, you know, in your browser, you've got tons of rural Italian real estate websites. <laughs> and I go, oh, you know, that's not pornography. She says, oh, yeah, it is. She says, we're never moving to Italy. <laughs> this is like a total waste of time. And, and, she, and she's like this, I know, I know you, I know what you're doing, because she knows that apart from Christ, long ago, my marriage would have imploded, I would have moved to the Dolomites, bought a vineyard, and become a ski bum. That's me, right? So still to this day, when life is hard, I'm like this, where can I go? To get out of this board meeting, <laughs> to get out of this hard conversation, to get out of this, this culture that's so hurting right now, so angry right now, so divided right now. I know, I'll go live in the Dolomites. Dolomite real estate, under $15,000. <laughs> and there we go. So look, encumbrances, besetting sins. Am I making sense? Yeah, yeah, I know I am. We all of us have to set this stuff aside and we do it by naming it and renouncing it and telling someone, hey, hi, my name is Richard. I'm an Italian holic, right? Uh, whatever it is, and then, and, then, and then we support each other as we walk this way. You oh, but here's the deal. You only have a besetting sin if you're human. So that's all of you, right? Uh, but you only know about it if you're mature enough and self-aware enough to, to, to name it. Then, uh, next, we come to this. Run your race with endurance. Really significant. First of all, a couple observations. First, it's your race. So quit comparing. This is uh, uh, John 15. Remember what Jesus said in John 15? Abide in me, and my word abide in you. And here's a promise. You will bear much fruit. Good enough. But here's the thing. The, the, the nature of that fruit, the scope of that fruit, the context of that fruit, the timing of that fruit, God's prerogative, not yours. So uh, you abide, and then your life, if you abide, your life's available. You're going you're gonna to allow the wind of the Spirit to take you wherever the wind of the Spirit wants to take you, and the wind of the Spirit will take you places that you don't want to go. It may be a ge ge uh, geographical challenge. 
you, you may love sun, and God sends you to Seattle. That's, I, I have many friends exactly in that boat. You may love rain and mist and mountains, and God sends you away from Seattle. I have friends in that boat, too. A seminary student who graduated from Seattle Pacific Seminary is now joyfully serving the Lord in the deserts of Iraq, working with Kurdish people. But he loves Seattle. Okay, so the context is not your prerogative. It's God's. And, and, and the scope is not your prerogative. So, you know, how many books you sell, not your problem. Your market share, not your problem. The size of your church, not your problem. Your net worth, not your problem. Where you are in the org chart, not your problem. Don't, don't even worry about it. It's God's prerogative. You abide and let God determine the when, the where, you know, the how much. And God will make those determinations. But, but please, in the name of running your race faithfully, quit comparing yourself with other people. And go, you know, how come I'm here in the org chart and that lazy bum is here? I don't get that. That will destroy you. You don't elevate yourself. And if you don't believe me, read Joseph in Genesis. God moves the pieces around. We just serve faithfully without comparison. This is really, really important. Uh, my wife and I were serving perfectly happily in the Cascade Mountains of Washington State, running a wilderness ministry and uh, 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 pastoring a house church of 20. And then as, I'm, as I do, I went and spoke for a week at a church in Seattle. They asked me to, you know, apply. I did. Longer story than this. But, we, like, we knew. We knew, we knew. We had to move to Seattle. And we didn't want to go. But we went anyway. Because it's not our prerogative to decide where we're going to live, what we're going to do. It's your race, but God is the one who's putting the wind in the sail. And let God take you wherever God wants to take you. That will liberate you, right? And then we won't have to, we won't have to worry about how famous we are or infamous we are. We won't have to worry about our reputation anymore because the, here's the one thing we're going to do. This one thing. I'm going to follow Christ where he takes me. But man, that's liberating. Not just spiritually liberating, though it is. I, I can tell you, it's physiologically liberating. Less cortisol, better sleep, lower resting heart rate, all that good stuff. That's not the goal, but that's just an added blessing because, you know, no longer are we like, I got to make it happen. No, no, we don't. Christ lives in you, and Christ is going to make happen what Christ wants to happen, not what you make happen. So it's your race, but quit comparing. Then, if it's the real thing, know this, you're going to feel like quitting along the way. Why? Because that's what endurance means. Like the very nature of the word endurance means this, you feel like quitting. I can't remember who I met here this week, but one day, I was so proud of myself, I'd come back from my, you know, thrice weekly four to five mile run. You know, I'd go down to the Cowell Redwoods and run around and come back and I see this guy and he's like this, just finished my 15. 15? Who does that? <laughs> I kind of hated him for a second there. But here's the thing. What he and I share in common, and other, we all do, 
we are at a point in our running where we're psychologically done. And we're like, this, I'm, you know, I want to quit right now. And that's exactly at the point that you need endurance. So, you know, a marathoner, they have, they have a tr kind of a training program in order to build endurance. So in our church, we started this thing, and these are available at the back. We, help, we want people to develop a rule of life, which is a training program for endurance. That's all it is. And people go, at first people were like this, ah, oh, that's legalistic. I go, no, listen, we call it, subtitle, soil care for the soul. Because remember that parable of Jesus, the parable of seed and the sower? What does Jesus say? He says, hey, you know, the farmer goes out, he sows seed. Some seed grew, multiplied amazingly. Other seed died in the rocks. Other seed choked by the vine. But hear me, the problem was never the seed. Ever. Seed's fine. What's the seed represent? Christ in you, the hope of glory. Look, Jesus lives in you. You are complete. You are called. You are filled. You are loved. You are gifted. That's not the problem. Well, then how come all of us aren't thriving? There's soil problems. So you're your own farmer, man. Take care of the soil. Well, how do you do that? I'm glad you asked. You know? Simplicity, solitude, fasting, Sabbath, meditation, Bible study. You kind of develop your own habits that care for the soil so that the seed that is Christ can grow. That's how it works. So um, let's just use Bible reading as an example. You know, when you run, some days it's a blast. Some days it's neutral. Some days it's a little painful. Some days it's downright boring. But you don't run or not run because of how it felt on any given day. And if you're not a runner, I'll use a better example. Remember marriage, okay? In marriage, here's one of the things. Like every day, time with spouse. Every day. True? I mean, you're supposed to do that. Okay, we do that. You know, every morning, I get up, I do my thing. My wife walks with the neighbors with the dog. Then we come back, and then we have, she has tea, I have coffee, and we talk about our day. And then we, you know, and other things. So, so here we go. Uh, some, this, is the, this is the way it works. I'm being honest with you. Some days, I love that time with my wife. It's just incredible. It's profoundly intimate, and there's, you know, there's confession and restoration and tears. Some days, it's profoundly funny. You know, we're yucking it up and telling jokes and laughing at stuff that we saw. Other days, can I just be honest with you? Other days, it's a little boring. It's like... You ever do this? Your spouse is talking and you've heard it before or if you're the man, you're like this. I know there's a point somewhere four miles down the road. Could you please get there now? And you check out, right? Well, here's the deal. I, like I've never said to my wife ever, you know, yesterday's coffee time was boring and today's was boring as well. I'm gonna give you one more chance. You know, if it's boring again, we're out of here. Like, there's a word for people like that, previously married. <laughs> so why? Look, you just keep showing up. Because if you keep showing up, good things will happen. Same thing's true with reading your Bible. You know, you don't read your Bible to check a list. You read your Bible to encounter 
the beauty that Eric has been so wonderfully talking about, you know, I want to encounter the beauty and glory of God, believing that that will transform me. And some days it's very clear. And other days it's profoundly convicting. And other days it's profoundly life-giving. And other days it's Leviticus, right? <laughs> but okay, we show up and God does the transforming work. It's really, really important that we understand that. And then finally, this, as we bring this, we kind of wrap it up. Look, fix your eyes on Jesus. I mean, the whole way, this is what the text says, fix your eyes on Jesus. Don't fix your eyes on the Arizona recount. Don't fix your eyes on the national debt. Don't fix your eyes on the rising temperature of the planet and the fact that California's on fire and running out of water. We're not told to ignore these things. But don't fix your eyes on them. Don't fix your eyes on you know, who, who's masked and who isn't, and who's vaxxed and who isn't, and what, you know, whether Delta's going to open schools. They're all important matters, but don't fix your eyes there because that does not define you. Kingdoms rise and fall. Nations come and go. Plagues come, plagues go. Drought comes, it rains again. All good. But you love Jesus. And then because of that, you know, be Jesus to your neighbor. Love your neighbor. Fix your eyes on Jesus. And who is Jesus? Well, a couple things. He's the author of your faith. So that means, you know, he chose you, and he's with you. And I already told you the story of, uh, uh, of Jacob. He will never leave you. So, so you keep coming home to Jesus. And you keep your ear to the ground so you're hearing the voice of Jesus. You, do, you develop a life of intimacy with Jesus. You, I mean, you do that. I was in uh, Thailand on an overnight due to a delayed flight on the way to India to teach one time and ended up in this motel where with your $20 lodging fee, they offered you a girl. I, had, I didn't know that going in, obviously. And I said to the guy, I don't want a girl. I pull out my wallet, you know, here's my, here's my wife, my kids. Oh, yeah, the girl comes with a room. I said, I don't want anyone in this room but me. And then he got mad at me. Still 20 bucks. And he stormed out. And then you know, I lay down on the bed. I started getting sick to my stomach. <laughs> and uh, I kind of tried to sleep. And within five minutes, I packed my bag again, and I was out of there. And as I, as I was walking out, I saw a girl. I don't know, 14? You know, dressed for work. I spent the night in the Bangkok airport and, you know, that night, I believe Jesus began changing my theology. Because <laughs> I, I was going to India to teach Exodus and Hebrews. And I, here, I had Exodus wired. Yeah, you know, uh, Jesus is all about freedom from slavery. And what does that mean? Slavery to sin. End of sentence. And then I'm thinking about this 14-year-old girl. 
And I'm like this, does Jesus care about ending your slavery to sin? Absolutely. Like your slavery to bitterness or body image issues or bitterness or, or lust or greed or shame or, you know, whatever it is. Does God want to set you free? Of course. And her too. <laughs> and people have fear for their life in Guatemala and Honduras. Does God care about all of that? Yes, all of it. So, you know, when you fix your eyes on Jesus, Jesus ends up continuing to, as Eric said just over the broom, kind of blow your world up and expand your horizons. That's both disconcerting and an adventure. You fix your eyes on Jesus, though, because he's the author. Like, he's continuing to write a story, and he's the perfecter, which means this. He is infinitely, relentlessly, unconditionally committed to your transformation. He loves you infinitely and loves you so much that he won't let you stay complacent. And he has to put barrier after barrier in your way and trial after trial to kind of wake you up. So be it. Because here's the one thing you don't want to do. You don't want to start like Israel did in Exodus with, you know, blood on the door, pass through the Red Sea, you know, massive dancing, all of that tantamount to your coming forward, signing a card, getting baptized, uh, baptized, beginning a Bible study. And then five years later, it's this. It's cynicism. It's a political Jesus. It's hidden sin that you're afraid to tell anybody about because the church is too judgmental. And, and, and you're dying on the vine and you're dying in the wilderness. Don't let it happen. Run the whole race, man, because what's ahead is always better than where you came from. Always, always. So you keep following. And I, I, I don't want to make that sound exciting. Most days are pretty normal. They're not camp days. They're what I call Tuesdays. And the reason I call Tuesdays Tuesdays is because, you know, Monday's a bummer anyway. So you kind of rise up for it. Wednesday's hump day. Thursday's almost Friday. Friday is Friday. <laughs> and then there's Tuesday. There's, I got nothing. Tuesday's like, okay, it's another day at the office. Uh, you know, when I come, when I listen to Eric, I'm going to be out there as close as I can be to that corner because that's where I always sit whenever I listen to a speaker here because that's where I sat when I was 12 years old and I came up from my grandma's house to buy beef jerky and heard a British accent coming from this pulpit and uh, the speaker's name was John Hunter. And I sat back there and uh, John Hunter was speaking and I liked what he said so much that I took my money and went and bought his book instead of beef jerky. And he was a speaker for Torchbearers International. And then, 20 years later, I'm a pastor, I'm 32, and I want people to understand the joy of appropriating the resurrected Jesus who lives within us. So I called Cape and Ray Hall in England and I said, I want John here to come and speak at my church because uh, he changed my life when I was 12 years old. Well, you know, he's 85 now and uh, no. <laughs> but Cape and Ray has a new school. It's in Canada. Why don't you call them? It's like 100 miles from where I was. So I did, and the director of school came down. We became friends. He invites me 
to come speak at his school in Canada. While I'm there, I meet Major Thomas. Major Thomas invites me to come speak in 1993 in England to the staff of all the torturer schools. And so I'm, I'm sitting where Dave is, and then uh, Major Thomas comes and he says, Richard, uh, there's someone I'd like you to meet. And he takes me over and here's this little guy who's then in his 90s. And Major Thomas goes, uh, I want you to meet John, Mr. John Hunter, Dr. John Hunter. And he introduces me to the guy now in England who at that moment, uh, it would be 27 years earlier for me as a 12-year-old, had changed my life. And I said to him, this is what I said. I said, you have no idea. Like I was a little kid in the back at Mount Hermon in 1968. And you were preaching, and I, I still remember, you were preaching on limiting God. I remember the title of your talk. I said, it's changed my life. He said, no, I don't, no, I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> but then he, this is what he said. He said, he said, but I never worry. Because I just know that when I show up and offer Jesus to people, good things will happen. Listen, you're going to leave here, I hope and pray, inspired. But don't go home running on adrenaline, people. Because that'll get you about to San Jose. Or Monterey if you're heading south. No, no, no. Listen, go with this kind of quiet confidence that Christ who lives in you will now empower you to be nothing less than the presence of Jesus to a world and to churches filled with anger and fear and greed and, and, and name-calling. You be different. You be light, even on Tuesdays. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we have these moments. Would you now seal in our hearts what we've heard? The seed is never the problem. Transform the soil of our hearts by your work and our participation. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I'll just let you know, these are available on the back table by the sound booth right back there, these rule of life things. Thank you so much. It's been a joy to be with you.